you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to be getting back to the Big Story series. If you're just kind of jumping in, the Big Story series, we've been walking through the whole in Old Testament so that we can see that Christ is the center of all Scripture. That all Scripture points us to Christ and finds its fulfillment in Christ and its realization in Christ. That the Old Testament is not a bunch of random heroes. It's about a single hero the Lord Jesus. So we're going to be reading all of chapter 11 together. If you're able to remain standing, I I wish that you would. If you're unable, that is totally, totally fine. I want you to, to to have a seat and to be comfortable. Beginning in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 11, it says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not that this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house and all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a long journey? Why do you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at the bez? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall also say, Your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. 
The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, how tempted we all are to live secret lives. How tempted we all are to have secret sins that we believe that we can conceal so that others think that we're better than we actually are. How easily we can find ourselves in places that we would have never dreamed possible doing things that we would have never thought ourselves capable of. And God, my prayer is this morning that you would use David's life to call us back to Jesus. I pray that, Lord, you would use David's life to call people out of a secret life and into repentance, that they might find freedom. I pray that you would use David's life to prevent people from going into a secret life that are right there on the precipice. I pray, Father, that we would be people who live openly before you in the fear of the Lord, in accountability with one another, striving to stoke our fires of zeal so that our vigilance does not wane. Oh Lord, I offer up our congregation to you this morning and I ask that you would protect us. I pray for our children that they would not have secrets to keep for their moms and their dads and their leaders. I pray that, Father, we would not live lives that bring shame and displeasure to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I've been wrestling a lot lately with what to do with leaders, people that have been important to me, people that have been spiritually influential in my life, what to do when you realize that they've been living a secret life. And, and, I, and I understand that on, on, on some degree, all of us don't live up to the, the standards that are established of holiness in the Scripture. I understand that. And I understand that in all of our lives, there is hypocrisy. And I am chief among the hypocrites, I'm here to tell you. But there is something to be said when there's someone that has had a profound effect on your spiritual life, a profound effect on your walk with Jesus, a profound effect with how you see reality and what you believe to be true and real and right, people that have walked and ushered you into deeper, richer worship of, of the true God to discover that they are living a life that is totally opposite of everything that they've preached everything that they've taught, everything that they've proclaimed. And it has an effect to where you begin to wonder what's actually real. What's actually real? 
Is it real when I believe that they showed me this vision of Christ and this vision of his church and this vision of the gospel? Is that real? Those experiences that I had where where I believe God was speaking to me and changing me and and altering the way that I see the world, was, was that real? And they sat across the table from me and, and wept over the things of God. Was, was that real? Maybe I don't know what real is. Maybe, maybe none of this is real. A lot of questions come up, don't they? When we have a leader that falls in that way. I think about men like Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias was a, a world-renowned apologist. I benefited greatly from his work, had deep admiration for him, had never lived in a, a scandal. The entirety of his ministry had traveled the globe as an apologist, making the case for the plausibility and the rightness that Christ was the center of the world and that Christ was the creator and that Christ was the one that we had owed our lives to, went and debated atheistic scholars and went on to college campuses and evangelized and had honest, open conversations with college students that that didn't believe in Jesus and had questions about Jesus. And then in May of 2020, or I'm sorry, in October of 2020, he dies of of spinal cancer. And by February of 2021, his family and his own ministry, RZIM, have to release a statement that his whole life essentially had been a fraud. They discovered on his phone numerous pictures of nudity. That he had owned massage parlors where he had preyed upon the the workers there and had become a sexual abuser that was internationally known. And there is his organization. There are all of the people, and I know many that were impacted by his ministry that that now are, are left holding the back. And then there are his children who are having to clean up his mess. And you sit and you sit, think of how eloquent he, wa- he was and how seemingly powerfully he spoke and, and how he, he opened your eyes to the grandeur of God and you wonder, is this real? Is it real? How can a man live such a secret life and say such poignant, powerful things at the same time if this is real? David lives a life like that. David lives a life like that. Up until 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is painted as having an unimpeachable character. He is a man that is described as being after God's own heart. He's literally writing the hymn book for the people of God that they can sing and praise the, the living God. He's the one that has slayed the giant. He's the one that refused to kill Saul even when he had the opportunity because that was God's anointed man. Even though Saul was trying to kill him, he is a man that is shown as being sterling, as being one that is an example to us of what it means to live wholeheartedly unto the Lord with courageous faith and devoted passion. And then we turn the page to chapter 11. Then we turn the page to chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. And one of the things that you come to understand if you're new to the Christian faith is that the Bible does not whitewash its history. The Bible does not whitewash its heroes. The the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 is filled with people with grave sin in their life. And we see that certainly is the case with David. That David does something. And 
He lives and it lives with such hypocrisy that it would cause all of us to look over all that David has done and all the hymns that David has written and all the prayers that David has prayed and all the feats that David has accomplished and just to ask, is any of that real? Is any of that real? Well, we're going to wrestle with that question over about three weeks. I'm not going to be able to answer that today. And, 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 and honestly, as, as we wrestle with this question together, you're going to be responsible for wrestling with that individually. You have to wrestle with that. Is this real? Because I'm telling you, our heroes on this earth will inevitably disappoint us. And we have to decide what is true, not about our heroes, but what is true about Jesus. What is true about Jesus? And so this morning, what I want us to look at as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 is I want us to ask the question, how is it that we can find ourselves on the path to a secret life? I want us to look at the unexpected path of the secret life because nobody anticipates and plans on living a double hidden secret life. The first thing I want you to see about David is that I want you to see the start of his secret life. The start of his secret life. Have you ever wondered how somebody uh, ends up in the middle of a secret life? Like, like maybe you turn on the news or you, you uh, look on your Facebook feed and there's a pastor that you found out has had a 20-year affair or there is a public figure and he's had a, a second family the whole time. Do you ever just stop for a second and think like, how did you end up there? Like, how did that begin? How did that start? And I think we see that answer in David. We see that a secret life starts subtly, not suddenly. Subtly, not suddenly. It's a slow drift, a slow fade, an an unexpected decision that leads to another decision, that leads to another decision. I want you to think about David. David ends up with the secret that he has because he starts out just in the wrong place. He starts out in the wrong place at the wrong time, being where he shouldn't be. It seems really minor in the grand scheme. Look at what it it says there in verse 1. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Okay, so, so, so it's painting a picture for us, isn't it? The narrator is telling us, this is the time in which when you're, if you're in a, a conflict, if you're in a battle, this is the time in which you go out to battle. All the kings are going out to battle. You have to understand that the kings in David's day are not like the kings in our day. The kings in our day, they have soft little hands and they have a pampered little life. And they do. In David's day, you became king because you were the baddest dude in town. You became king because you were the greatest warrior of all of the warriors. You were the one that everybody feared, the one that everybody revered. And so the king was the general. The king was the one that that led his people into battle so that he would inspire them forward. And certainly that was the case with David. David was the baddest of them all. You remember with Saul. Remember what the, the chant was? Saul kills his thousands, but David kills his tens of thousands. This was a bad, bad, bad dude. And his people, his warriors, his armies are going to fight the battles. But where is David? David's hanging at the palace. David isn't where he ought to be. David isn't doing what he ought to do. The word remained here. It means literally sitting. 
Remaining at Jerusalem means he's sitting in Jerusalem. That in other words, David didn't even find it necessary to get out of his seat. That he's just seated there in Jerusalem, seated there in his palace, seated there living the high life. And it's meant for us to understand something that's happening in the background. Something that, that you, can, you can describe but you can't really put your finger on. Something that, that you know is true but you have a, a difficult time articulating. And it's, David's not as zealous as he used to be. David's passion is waning. You see, you have to understand the circumstances. David has achieved success in a way that would have exceeded his wildest imaginations. At this point in David's reign, David has more than doubled the size of territory of Israel. It's enormous. The treasuries are full. There's no real threat to the, to the people of God. The Ammonites, the Ammonites aren't a threat. They're an annoyance. They're just on the periphery of the kingdom, and he's kind of pushing them back so they don't irritate the, the landholders of the people of God on, on, that, part of the, on that part of the territory. They're, they're an annoyance, not a threat. It's peacetime. And there is David. Resting on his laurels. There is David resting on his accomplishments. And we see this in David's life. That David thrives in adversity. And adversity brings out the very best in David. But as is so often the case, success reveals a flawed character. Success gives David the opportunity to sin. Success allows David to sit back too often and think, look how mighty I have been. Look how great I have been. Look what a successful ruler I have been. Look what a great king I have been. And what we see here as David sits in Jerusalem, as he keeps his seat there in the palace just hanging out with his crew, is David isn't who he used to be. David used to be driven. He used to be passionate. He used to be zealous. He would do whatever God would have him to do. He would go wherever God would have him to go. He would be whoever God would have him to be. He was the one that was leading the charge, but now he's not leading the charge. He's sitting at the house. And so what we see in David's life is that he's lowering his guard. That's the first step in a secret life. The lowering of your guard, the waning of your passion, the, the erosion of your zeal. But not only, not only did da do we see here that David is lowering his guard, he's keeping his seat in Jerusalem. And while he's sitting, his eyes are wandering. Do you see this? Look at what, the way it draws it out. It says it happened, verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, walking on the roof, uh, walking on the roof of the king's house. And the woman was very beautiful. Do you see the, the appeal here to the eyes that we're supposed to be drawn to and understanding exactly how it is that David finds himself in the circumstances? And what it drives home are there's two things that are present in David's life. The first thing that we see in David's life is that he has nothing to do. He arose from the couch. He's chilling on the couch. David has become a couch potato. And he's just let, there used to be the mighty warrior. There used to be the, the writer of Psalms. There used to be the leader of the nation. There used to be the man that is after God's own heart. And now he's just laying on the couch. Now he's just laying on the couch. He has nothing to do. And though he has nothing to do at the same time, he's looking for something that will catch his eye. The Old Testament in particular always brings us to the eyes when it's talking about temptation. 
This starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, the serpent brings and presents the fruit or the, the tree to, to Eve. And do you remember what Eve said? What it says about Eve? It says that she looked and she saw that the tree was good to eat. She saw it. That the temptation entered through the eyes and it planted a seed in the mind and then spread into the heart before there was ever an action on which she took. And so here is David, and he's, he sees, his eyes are wondering while he's sitting there, not where he's supposed to be, doing what he's not supposed to be doing. And his eyes begin to wonder, and his eyes are drawn to this beautiful woman that sits there over the fence of the palace. You see, do you know why sin is tempting? Temptation is tempting because it's attractive. Temptation is tempting because it's appealing to the eyes. Because it looks good and right and wonderful. See, temptation offers the same thing in a hundred different packages. What does temptation offer? Happiness. It offers to you happiness. Why is it that you keep drinking? It offers happiness. Why is it that you're drawn to the relationship with that woman that isn't your wife that you work with, she offers you happiness. Why is it that every night when the kids go to bed and your wife seems is, uh, is all alone that you go back to the glow of that computer screen, it offers to you happiness. Why do you take the pill? Because it offers to you happiness. Why is it that you fudge the numbers and, and misappropriate the funds at work? Because if I could just have a little bit more, if I could just have something else new, if I could just have something else better, maybe I will be happy. Temptation, like Bathsheba to David, offers bored, dejected, defeated people an opportunity at happiness, but it's a delusion. It's a delusion. It's false happiness. It's a mirage. It's, it's, a, it's a fountain in the middle of the desert. What you're seeing isn't the truth. Your eyes are deceiving you. And so there's David. He's sitting and his eyes are wondering. But I don't want you to miss this. And there's nobody there to ask him questions. There's nobody there to ask him questions. There's a word that comes up more than any other. The word sent. It comes up. 11 times in chapter 11. You see it there when it says that David sent Joab. David sent out. Now, I don't know how many of y'all are familiar enough with the Old Testament to have any idea of the relationship that David has with Joab. Joab is David's cousin, and they kind of have a cagey Duke boy cousin relationship, okay? They kind of come to blows a lot, if you know what I'm saying. Like, so, so in other words... Joab is that dude in David's life that will say, I don't agree with what you're saying. I, I don't think that what you're saying is good. I don't like your plan. I don't like your strategy. And sometimes they kind of combat one another. And it, it goes on kind of through the whole of the relationship. And where is Joab when David is sending for Bathsheba? Where is Joab when David is at his, at his most vulnerable? Where is Joab when David's, David's zeal begins to wane and his guard begins to lower? David has sent Joab away. That is David. David is keeping the very person that can ask him hard questions. 
David is sending the very person that can bring any level of accountability into his life, and he's sending him away. Joab, you go do what I'm supposed to do so that I can be left here alone. And then there's, this word comes up again, verse 3, and David sent and inquired about the woman. So he's sending his messengers, uh, verse 4, and David sent messengers and took her, took her. So, so what we're seeing, the other people that, are, that David is sending are just his servants. They're just his workers. They do what David tells them to do, and they have no questions for David. They're just yes men. That David has sent away all the people that could hold him accountable so that nothing is left in his life but yes men that will agree with whatever he says and do whatever he makes them do. And I would tell you that there has never been a more dangerous place in the life of any man or woman than when all they're surrounded with is an echo chamber that tells them what they want to hear and to do what they want to do. Do you see see the formula for a secret life that comes bubbling to the surface here? Do you see it? You start with a lowered guard, don't you? You start with a passion that wanes. You're, You're not as vigilant as you once were. You're not as devoted as you once were. You're not as passionate as you once were. You're, you're, the intensity of your fire has begun to cool. Now you're, you're laying on the couch. You're, you're sitting in the chair. And then you, you add to that an attractive temptation, right? You add to that an attractive opportunity. So that now you, you've, your, your devotion has waned and your vigilance has waned and you're sitting on the couch but your eyes are wondering and you see, you see something and it seems to offer you the mirage of happiness. It seems to offer you what you've always been looking for. It seems to be such a, a simple, easy, one-time fix. And then what do you do? You subtract from it accountability. And when you take somebody with a lowered guard and an attractive temptation, and you remove the accountability from their life, the, per, the people that can ask them difficult questions, what you're left with is a secret sin. What you're left with is a secret life. That's how they start. And so I want to ask you some hard questions this morning. I want you to diagnose your own heart. Is your fire as hot as it once was? Has your enthusiasm waned and your passion waned and your zeal eroded? Are your eyes wondering? Are your eyes looking for something to do? Are your eyes looking for something that can offer you a a stab at happiness, something that that will make you feel more fulfilled and more satisfied than what you already filled? And do you have anyone in your life that can ask you hard questions, the questions that you don't want people to ask you, the questions that make you uncomfortable, the questions that call you to account, the questions that make you answer for your life, for who you are and where you are and what you're doing? Because brothers and sisters, if you don't, if you don't, you are already on the well-worn path to a secret sin and a secret life that leads to destruction. The second observation I want us to see from David's life, not just the start of a secret life, but the spiral of secret sin. The spiral of secret sin. David's delusion of happiness, it doesn't last very long. David is there and he sends Bathsheba back home and he probably thinks in the moment at least that everything's fine, everything's okay, Uriah's away, nobody knows, just the messengers and the messengers aren't going to talk because they'll lose their lives if they talk. 
She probably thinks that he's gotten away with it, but that doesn't last very long. She comes back and she says, I am pregnant. People are going to know, David. My husband hasn't been home, David. You sent him to battle. You sent him to the front lines. You sent him to the edges to fight the Ammonites. You already know. People are going to know that something went down. And people know that I was in the palace. People are going to see this, David. I am pregnant. And what's David's response? What is, is David's response repentance? No. It's worldly sorrow. It's maybe not even that. What's the difference between godly repentance and worldly sorrow? Worldly sorrow is just sorry I got caught. Godly, godly repentance is being grieved that you've broken your relationship with the holy God. So David, at best, at best is sorry that he got caught. And he does not respond with mercy. He does not respond with compassion. He does not respond with care. He does not respond with concern. He doesn't even say a word to Bathsheba at all in the text. What he does is he says, go and get Uriah. Let's start the cover up. Let's start the cover up. That David's immediate response is the cover-up. It's just like in Genesis chapter 3, there is Adam and he's sinned against God. God has said, you're surely going to die. And what is his immediate response? To cover his nakedness with fig leaves, right? And so here the, the cover-up is initiated. And you know what the cover-up is? The cover-up is when secret sin becomes a secret life. That's the moment. That's the moment. It's when you attempt to divide yourself into two different people, the public you and the private you. It's when you attempt to cover a sin with more sin so that you might appear to other people as being sinless. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we do? We sin, we do something that we know is abhorrent, we do something that we know is displeasing to the Lord, we, knew that we do something that we know will bring shame upon us, and we continue to sin so that we can cover it and we continue to sin so that we can cover it so that other people will think, hey, they're pretty great. They're pretty awesome. They didn't sin after all. And what it begins is it begins a spiral of sin in our life where it begins to roll like a snowball and get larger and larger and accumulate more and more and leave more, more disaster in its wake everywhere that it goes. I want you to think about the picture that we have here in 2 Samuel 11. You'll notice, first of all, that he breaks essentially every commandment. He breaks essentially every commandment. If you, if you think about the, the Ten Commandments, you, you remember they're, they're presented to us in being in two tablets. Two tablets, right? And on one tablet, you have all the commandments that have to do with our relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no, uh, no idols. You shall keep the Sabbath holy, right? So you have all the, the commandments that have to do with our relationship with God. And then on the second tablet, you have all the, the uh, commandments that have to do with our relationships with one another. You shall not lie. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, right? So, so you have these two tablets that represent the love God, love people reality of the commandments of the Lord. David, David shatters both, both tablets. Think about it. Okay, let's think about the second tablet first, the relationship with one another. What, is, what does David do? First of all, David covets. He covets for the wife of Uriah. He's jealous, envious of Uriah. Then he goes and he gets, he gets Bathsheba. He abuses Bathsheba. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. 
Then he brings, and he brings Uriah home, and he attempts to cover it up with a lie and to cover it up with something that is certainly not the truth, with nothing but rare, I mean, raw deception every step of the way. Then that doesn't work out, so he sends Uriah back, and he murders Uriah, and it says that there's actually additional casualties because Joab has to send a whole, tr- a whole legion of people up closer to the wall than they ought to be, and multiple people die, so now he's a, a multiple murderer responsible for the organization. Then he brings Bathsheba into his house and he steals the wife of Uriah. What commandment is there left? He's broken them all. What started as a single sin, what started as a single moment of lust, what began as a single thought, what what entered his mind through a single sight has spiraled so that he has shattered the entire second tablet Of the commands of God. But there's an even more interesting picture. Who are they fighting? Who are they fighting? They're fighting the Ammonites. The Ammonites. Pagan people worshiping a pagan God. Living for themselves. Living according to their lust. Living as though God is not real. Because they do not believe that there is a God. Do you know how the Ammonites came to be? This gets to that first tablet. Our relationship with God. Look right here at Genesis chapter 19. It tells us how the Ammonites came to be. So they made their father, this is Lot. You remember Abraham and Lot? This is Lot. So they made their father, Lot, drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Skip down to verse 38. It says, the younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Amni. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. The Ammonites were the result of people taking advantage of a drunken man that was purposely drunken that they might do something that was that was sexually deviant. Now, what is David's plan to cover this up? He tries to get Lot dr- he tries to get Uriah drunk. Uriah, he tries to get him drunk so that he can then be able to to manipulate him so that he'll go and sleep with his wife and present, be able to present the son as being Uriah's son after all. So he is trying to take advantage of Uriah for a sexually deviant purpose. And the picture is clear enough, y'all. If you see it with the eyes of the Old Testament... It is condemning David that David is living as an Ammonite, not as an Israelite. That David here is living as though he is a worshiper of a pagan God. He is living as though he is unaccountable to God. He is living as though God cannot see what he is doing or where he is going or cares how he ends up. That David is here living like an atheist. And I wonder about your life. It started as a lust. It started as, 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 a, as, a, as, a, as something that you saw. It progressed into something that you wanted, something that you felt like you couldn't live without. It, 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 it climaxed in this moment of, of just irreprehensible sin and you, you couldn't believe what you had done. And then there was the cover-up and one sin led to another sin until eventually you're two completely different people. And you're living trying to manipulate the relationships in your lives, in your life. Trying to manipulate the circumstances in your life so that people believe something about you that isn't true. 
Do you know what you are, what you're doing when you try to manipulate the relationships in your life and the circumstances in your life to present yourself as though you are the one that's in control? You're trying to be God. And you're shattering the whole first tablet of your relationship with God as you seek to displace him in your own life. David never thought he would get there, and I bet you didn't either. I bet you didn't either. In your life right now, are you trying to manipulate your husband or your wife and your kids and your relationships and your circumstances? And maybe, maybe, maybe the reason that you feel so anxious is that you've realized that you can't balance this anymore. Maybe the reason that it feels like you're unraveling from the inside out is because for so long you've tried to keep all of it in and you've tried to pretend like none of it's real. But now it's about to explode from you and you just don't know how much longer you can do it. Guess what? The reason is, is you're not God. You're not God. You're not God. You're living like an atheist, even though you're claiming to be a believer in the Lord Jesus. But it wasn't just that he broke every commandment. He destroyed every person. He destroyed every person. I don't don't want you to miss this. This is very important. Have Have you realized that in all of 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we've established a pretty, pretty long chapter here, 2 Samuel 11, Every single person is hurt by David's sin. Every single one that is mentioned in the whole chapter is damaged by David's sin. Now, I want want to to start this by sharing with you a universal reality. The longer that you keep a secret, the more people are hurt and the worse they're hurt. The longer that you keep a secret, the more people are hurt and the worse they are hurt. I want you to think about David's life. So, so you have Bathsheba and Uriah in the beginning. Had David stopped right there after his adultery with Bathsheba, there's damage. There, there's damage. There's scars there. There's pain, right? There's, there's suffering. Uriah is hurt. Bathsheba is certainly hurt. She, is, she has been violated in ways that she could have not foreseen. Uriah's had his wife taken from him. They're hurt in ways that, that is seemingly boggles the mind when we think about a man of God. But they're not destroyed. They're not destroyed. But what does David keep doing? What does David do? He keeps going. He keeps going. He keeps going until he brings into question Uriah's honor. There's, there's, there's different lines, and I'm told that if you understand the context, that, that essentially when, when David goes and he questions, like, you won't go lay down with your wife, that there's essentially what he's doing is questioning the virility of Uriah as a man, that he's calling into question his very manhood, that you won't go sleep with your wife. What kind of man are you? What kind of snowflake are you? He questions that. Then then he sends Uriah and his troops to the front line, has him murdered. Then there's Bathsheba. Bathsheba's whole future is going to be different than the way that she thought it was going to be. Her life is ruined. It's nothing the way that she planned. It's nothing like what she expected. Not only has she been abused, she's being brought out of her house into David's house, and she has no say in the matter, and she's got to raise children with this guy. I think it comes to a head in verse 25, though, in a way that's very, very sneaky that would be easy for us to miss. Think about Joab in all of this. Think about Joab. It says, David said to the messenger, first of all, you think about the messengers. I mean, they're just bystanders, and they, they've got David, no doubt, up on a pedestal, thinking, thinking that he is this mighty man of God, and now they're having to take all of this nonsense to the, to the, to the front lines. And it says, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. 
For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. David realizes that Joab is going to be distraught over what he's participated in. Now Joab is complicit in the murder of men that he was responsible for. And so there's this word, displeased. In, in other words, what David is saying is don't let this be seen as evil in your eyes. Don't let this be seen as bad in your eyes. People die at war, Joab. Maybe it was this guy. Maybe it was that guy. We just chose the guy that it was going to be. It's not a big deal, Joab. Don't sweat it because he knows, he knows Joab is going to be damaged by the fallout. Joab is going to take some PTSD trauma away from this experience. I want you to think about the people in your life. When you started the cover-up, it was just your sin. It was just about what you wanted. It was just about your, your, your seeking of happiness It was just about your attempts to find something better for yourself. But it reminds me of a story that I read just a few years ago. There was a a man, and he was there, and he was with his toddler, and they were in Birmingham, and the man was involved, the dad was involved in a a drug deal. And the drug deal went sideways, and the drug deal went bad, and, 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 and the group began to shoot at him, and he was not hit, but he gets back to the car, and he finds in his car that his toddler, his toddler had been shot and killed by a stray bullet. That was intended for his dad. And that's a picture of what's happening in our families every day. Sin is going off like a grenade. And the shrapnel is taking out every single person that we love and every single person that we're close to. Do you know who's bearing the secrets of your household? Your children. Your children are carrying the secrets. Your wife is carrying the secret. Your husband is carrying the secret. Your mom and dad are carrying the secret. Everybody has to carry the secret because you are the center of the universe and you are the only thing that matters. And I'm telling you, this thing is spiraling out of control and it will only lead to the destruction of the very things that you love the most. Learn from David. Learn from David. The longer you carry the secret, the more people it will hurt, and the worse people it will hurt, the worse it will hurt them. Repent today. Turn today. In the secrets today. Bring out of the dark into the light today. Today end it. Stop the spiral. Stop it from spreading like a crack in your windshield until it covers the whole thing. Final observation that I want you to see is that David is going to realize the sight of a sovereign God. The sight of a sovereign God. The most important verse in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is verse 27. Verse 27, look at what it says. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, that's Bathsheba, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's the word that we saw just a second ago, remember? David is pleased with what's happened. He's told Joab, don't don't be displeased. The word displeased there means literally eyes, eyes of evil. So here's what he's saying. David had done evil in the eyes of the Lord. David had done evil in the sight of the Lord. So here's David, and David is attempting this great cover-up, and David is attempting to take his secret sin and to let it spiral into a secret life, and it's having all of these very public consequences, and nobody can really put their finger on it. And there's David, unaccountable to anyone, clearly getting away with everything except verse 
27. The eyes of the sovereign Lord have seen it all. The eyes of the one before whom every man and every woman and every child will give an account. He has seen it all. and It is evil in the eyes of the Lord. The messengers may not say a word. And Joab may not say a word. And nobody may know a thing. And you may present yourself as a perfectly righteous person in all of public. But you have displeased the Lord. You are Guilty in the eyes of the Lord. You have done evil in the sight of the sovereign God. There is nothing. No matter what you believe or how you live or what you do or how clean your cover-up is or how pretty your smile is or how pressed your clothes are or how nice your house is or how sparkling your car is, there is nothing. There is nothing that is not exposed before the Lord. And I'm here to tell you that that is on one hand terrifying and it is on the other hand liberating. It is terrifying because you will give an account. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says that you will give an account for every good and bad thing that you have ever done. All of us will stand before the Lord and the highlight reel of our life will, will roll by. And the low light reel of our lives will roll by and it will be apparent and clear. And we will know that we stand there condemned in the fear of the Lord. But, but, but it can be good news. Because though we were children of wrath, Though we were children of wrath, God, God has intervened. So that if we today will confess our secrets before the Lord, if we will repent of our sins before the Lord, we, we don't stand before the, God, the Lord in his, his all-seeing eye as one who is totally guilty, but one who can be credited with a righteousness that wasn't ours to begin with. See, what David teaches us is that none of us can make it. None of us can make it. If there was a man that could have made it because he was good enough, it was probably the man that was after God's own heart. But David couldn't do it. And you can't do it. And David, David couldn't cover it up, and, and you can't cover it up. But one who is greater than David has come. One who is greater than David has come. And if you will turn from your sin and confess your sin and place your faith not in your ability to look better, not in your ability to cover up your sin, not in your ability to do good things, to outbalance the bad things, but if you will place your faith in the greater David that has come, then he will credit you with his perfect righteousness so that now you stand before the Lord totally free. And that's why you don't have to live like something you're not. That's why you don't have to pretend and put up a false front. God already sees. God already knows. But if you are credited with the righteousness of Jesus, he doesn't say he is displeased with you. He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.